Much of Russian history was shaped by the imperial experience. Alexander Etkin suggests that the process was a simultaneous one of internal colonization as well as the more obvious external one. The characteristic phenomena of colonialism, such as missionary work, exotic journeys, and ethnographic scholarship, were directed inwards towards the interior provinces of the Russian Empire, villages and timeless peasant lifestyles, as well as the outwards and overseas studies. To an extent, Russia is still an undiscovered country from the perspective of its urban elites, and we see this starkly in the current war, with the burden of fighting and dying falling on minorities and the impoverished. We also see a radical lack of empathy for other people within the empire who are experiencing violence, whether they be in Belgorod or Boratia. It even leads us to ask, can Russia even be compared to the modern nation states of Europe? Alexander Etkind is a historian and cultural scientist. He was born in 1955 in St. Petersburg, Russia, and is professor at CEU Vienna. He was formerly a professor of history and the chair of Russia-Europe relations at the European University Institute in Florence. He is fellow of the European Institute for International Law and International Relationships. Etkin's research focuses on European and Russian intellectual history, memory studies, natural resources, and the history of political economy, empire, and colonies in Europe. Now, he's also written some fantastic books. We will, of course, put descriptions to those in the videos, and I strongly recommend that you check them out. Alexander, it's a real pleasure to welcome you back for a second time to the channel. Thank you very much, Jonathan. That's an honor. Well, uh, there was so much to unpack last time, and we're talking now in the context of some incredible uh, changes. We've seen the uh, insurgents, so-called insurgents, or so little green men popping up in Belgorod and other border regions. Uh, and of course, we have seen Prigozhin's uh, attempted coup or mutiny or whatever label we want to put on it. It's perhaps not yet clear what that is. Um, it leads me to ask, with all these incidents going on, as well as the drone attack over the Kremlin, has Russia actually got any borders anymore? Borders? Um, well, there are fortifications, as, as we know very well, that basically cross now uh, Donbass and, um, and uh, Crimea and uh, Belgorodska gubernia, which is internally Russia gubernia, but um, a district. But that's the point that, you know, whether it is internal or external, it is, you know, this borders changed historically and uh, the political history of any country is about it. You know, so many things, you know, coups and um, wars of succession and whatever, but also about changing borders, either expansion outward or shrinking. Um, decrease uh, kind of go, go, going with being so the borders either go uh, forward or retreat, uh, di diminishing the, 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 the space of the uh, uh, state. Of course, when we are talking about empires, and I believe that the Russian Federation is still an empire, so this question of moving borders is way more relevant than the borders of an established nation state, which respects the recognized borders of their neighbors 
And looking at the footage of Belgorod and others, I mean, there's a, there's a channel called 1420 where people are interviewed, you know, on the streets of Russian uh, provincial towns or Moscow, whatever, about what they think about various issues. And there seemed to be a stark, uh, almost pathological lack of empathy for those people in Belgorod and other villages who were suffering violence, almost a sense that, well, that's a long way away and, you know, it has nothing to do with, with me. It has nothing to do with my sort of understanding of the world locally. Um, is, is, is that something, I mean, that's just anecdotal, but does this process of internal colonization uh, perhaps not engender uh, empathy or, or even limits this sense of, uh, you know, Russia being a, a consistent nation state? Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, when uh, the events of genocide happened in Bucha and other places in Ukraine, so you could, the Ukrainians and, and the whole world really was puzzled by the lack of empathy or protests in Russia, say in Moscow, or in St. Petersburg. Um, and that was puzzling. Uh, but, of, but with these events in Belgorod, um, and it's, it is anecdotal, but I, I think it's just a kind of premonition of things to come. Uh, we see that very similar attitude, you know, differences in scale were huge, but the attitude was the same. Very same attitude, the Moscovites uh, showed uh, in response to the events and actual suffering, whatever murders of uh, in in, in the, within the Russian borders, yeah, that's internal colonization. So Mos Moscow is very very different from um, all the rest of Russia, and the further it is, you know, the more the biggest the differences. But actually, there were differences, cultural differences, economic differences, political. Etc. Differences are huge. Also, if you go like 100 kilometers from Moscow, either you go north or south, east, west. Uh, Moscow is the center of exploitation, metropolitan center, uh, center of culture, education, whatever, political governance. And uh, everything else is, you know, just uh, the rest. This, this process uh, of internal colonization does it also require other aspects uh, of the nation state to be repressed? So this concept of having strong local identities, the concept of having, you know, some kind of agency or control over not just national politics, but also local politics. And can that perhaps suppression uh, of, uh, you know, I would say sort of normal political behaviours go in some part to explain uh this lack of empathy for those who are you know not in your immediate vicinity or within you know your your local experience yeah exactly it's like it's uh, empathy goes together with actual interest curiosity respect to diversity recognition of you know different beats and pe parts and, uh, and pieces and peoples uh, of the say of their empire uh, and uh, it's actually in the in many historical cases, uh, the metropolitan people and institutions of the empire had developed this kind of interest, curiosity, actual research 
precisely in the moment of decay, be before the fall. So the, the develop, development of this uh, interest, uh, psychographic expeditions, ethnographic research, etc., signal the coming decay and fall of the empire. And I think in, the, in Russia it has not actually started. So, there, so we are looking at a kind of a long decay and the forthcoming end. But uh, still there is a perception in the capitals, uh, and the Russian schools at Moscow and St. Petersburg, to capitals, even though the you know, major part of uh, money and, uh, and also personnel are uh, uh, concentrated in Moscow. So the, from, from, from the perspective of Moscow, there is really kind of no diversity. There's huge space, the biggest country in the world which includes Siberia and uh, and say uh, the uh, northern no, no, no regions of uh, the European Russia and, uh, and southern Russia where from 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 which we were hearing the news they are the so-called periphery the so-called provinces and they basically uh, they they are all the same and, and of course, it's easier in Britain, isn't it? We're surrounded by the sea. There's a natural constraint on on those uh, physical borders, at least of Britain. So I think we find it difficult to kind of understand that idea of a, of a land empire that's a little amorphous, vast, and has actually grown over the centuries. This process of internal colonization, does it lead to a certain amount of confusion or lack of understanding amongst Russians about where their country begins and ends? It is very complex, but you know, history is complex of any country, uh, any empire, to be sure. And say, talking about Great Britain, uh, you also have, have a you know Scottish border, you have borderlands, you have whatever Adrian Wall, and uh, um, this border was uh, a site of so many conflicts and uh, attacks and, and movement. Both, both uh, ways, and uh, you know, with the current uh, nationalist or separatist movement, however you call it, this border could be very relevant once again. You know, and that's so. You have, of course, Wales, and the very concept of internal colonization was created by British sociologist uh, Michael Hector. Um, uh, uh, who in his book about um, Wales, Wales uh, as an internal British colony, terrestrial colony. So, you know, the British Empire had India and whatever, and uh, 13 American colonies and much else. But it also had uh, and still have Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, which is separated you know, by a ter terrestrial border from the from Ireland. So, and it this border right now is a subject for very heated debates. So I don't think that it is so difficult for, say, Brit to imagine the relevance of terrestrial borders. But indeed, you know, high seas and all these oceans that separated, say, London and uh, whatever, uh, Calcutta, they, they, they kind of political, geopolitically probably it's easier to grasp. 
that was an extraordinary feature when uh, traveling around Russia, because, you know, if you go half an hour in any direction in Britain, accents change, uh, you know, building materials change, architectural styles change, local cultures, you, you, you get a lot of sort of local nuances of, of phraseology and so on. And that is in the modern age, which has seen a lot of systematization of, of, of cultures. Um, if you were to go back, you know, 80 years or so, 100 years in, in Britain, you'd have seen even greater diversity uh, in these localities. Whereas traveling, say, from Moscow to Murmansk through to, you know, right into Siberia, Irkutsk, and so on, which which I did some time ago, I was struck by the fact that I could I could understand what people were saying that there was relatively little variance in accents, uh, very little variance actually in sort of architectural styles. Um, you, you know, you you turn up in one town and yeah, it would have some features you hadn't seen somewhere else, but the it was the consistency that was shocking uh, rather than the diversity. Yeah, that's a very shocking experience. Uh, and uh, there are also, I mean, shocking for visitors. It was also a puzzle for uh, scholars. Um, and uh, there are many hypotheses or kind of theories why, say, there are the, the dialects in Russia uh, or in the former Russian Empire had been kind of so weakly developed and so were so kind of eagerly to vanish. So eager to vanish, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it also goes to architectural style uh, or the nature of local institutions. Um, but the, what, what is, I mean, there are theories and theories, but I, I believe that the overwhelming power of the central state is the explanation. And it is uh, true now, and it was true also in the 19th century. Uh, all these towns, the cities like Irkutsk or whatever, Novosibirsk or Murmansk, they were largely created by the power of the central state. So the, the state sent its engineers, architects, soldiers. Uh, it's also the state which was which was located in the capital, St. Petersburg again, and Moscow, also absorbed the um excessive labor from places like uh, Siberia or southern Russia and uh, um to, for you know creating factories whatever uh, or, or supporting the growing bureaucracy in the center so because of this overwhelming power of the state and weakness of what we would call nowadays civil society, but it's actually like local, lo local peoples, local 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 dwellers. Uh, they they could be ethnically the same as Russians or ethnically very different. It doesn't matter. They, they were very weak in comparison with this power of the state, and that created huge migration, huge sort of uh, arrogance, I think, on the part of the center. And um, and this is why there are no dialects. And is this also a product of, you know, we think of the central state being incredibly powerful, but actually is another interpretation to say that actually this need to control, this need to dominate actually comes from weakness, fragility, uh, even paranoia. And 
we can relate that back to the to the current case. I mean, under Putin, you supposedly have an extraordinary centralization of power under a single autocrat. Um, but the cracks that have been shown, you know, in the last couple of weeks and months, especially by Prigozhin's mutiny, um, suggest that actually the center is not as all-powerful or in control. And what we're looking at is a sort of Potemkin facade, uh, both in administrative terms, um, uh, you know, in terms of political ideology, in terms of the military. And we're now seeing real cracks in that uh, fairly thin veneer. Yeah, that's true. Um, but uh, th there are cracks, uh, which shows that this kind of state power is uh, uh, ev everything but flexible. There is no el elasticity. You know, uh, it it if it it cannot bend, it cracks and and breaks. It cannot really adjust to any kind of new circumstance. And uh, history goes on, so. It, in this condition, so the, all the power, this overwhelming power of the state, I, I, believe, I believe in that. It's about economics, it's about uh, the military power, uh, it's about bureaucratic institutions. It's all concentrated in one place. And uh, since they cannot bend and they know it, they are trying to freeze the situation. They, they effectively freeze it. And so therefore, you know, when when it bends, it falls. There is sort of no uh, no no uh, whatever no shock absorbing mechanisms in this machine. I always think of it in terms of a, a sort of fault line uh, in an earthquake. You know, if there's no give, you get one giant earthquake rather than a series of little little sort of tremors and, and shocks. Is that what things are leading up to? Because I know the media loves to speculate about revolution in Russia. They love to speculate about Prigozhin. Was it a coup? Was it not? Who was involved, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but do you think the cracks in the facade are big enough to actually bring it down uh, because this empire has actually existed for a couple of hundred years. And despite all the sort of shocks, it does seem to have generation after generation found a way to, to continue. Um, one could even say the Soviet union was, you know, a way uh, they found a method to continue, uh, you know, that Imperial uh, expansion, uh, albeit in, in a way that was superficially progressive by, uh, you know, adopting um, sort of socialist principles, etc. Um, is there any more adaptability or is this system reaching the end of its life? Look, uh, one could say that it is one continuous empire, whatever, from Ivan Grozny to, to Putin through the Russian Empire, through the Soviet Union, through the Russian Federation. But don't, don't forget, uh, there, were, there, there were times of trouble in the 17th century, huge, very long and very painful uh, period, like the population of Moscow halved then. You know, there was the revolution of 1917, revolution, several major events, you know, global sort of cataclysms. Uh, earthquakes, political earthquakes of global um, scale. And, and then there was 
terror, decades of terror, you know, millions, dozens of millions of people were killed. And then it kind of returned to some kind of um, alleged normality in the late uh, 20th century. Uh, but then there was another revolution in 1991, kind of another cataclysm. So, uh, and the, the very deep, deep character of the state uh, changed. Uh, yes, there was continuity, but there were huge disruptions, explosions, really, political explosions every time. And I I'm, I'm positive that we are uh, looking at the start of it. So pre pre the Prigozhin's mutiny, I think that was mutiny. And this is how it is actually called in Russia nowadays. But even though there are rumors that calling it, using the word mutiny for this Prigozhin march, across European Russia uh, would be criminalized, like it would be like uh, equal to the whatever, uh, defamation. Uh, but uh, mutiny or rebellion, and uh, it, it did happen. Uh, it happened, it, it ended much earlier than anybody could predict, but nobody also could predict that it would happen, but CIA now says that they predicted. Uh, but didn't communicate it, which was interesting because, like, if they couldn't communicate it then, why they can communicate it now? There are the same sources that they uh, sort of they reveal. But um, these events are truly unpredictable. That Prigozhin mutiny was shocking in its uh, scale and determination, and then it was also equally shocking that it stopped. Obviously, despite the CIA and other sources of information, we still do not know about the sort of under, under undercover deals and but and whatever mafia-like negotiations that happened. They happened by telephone or that like they belong to this kind of oral culture, you know, which is very easily easy to distort and or, or just to forget this kind of things. Uh, to mythologize, but I, I'm positive that we will learn more, you know, eventually with time. And, uh, you know, historians will be, you know, happy to, you know, working on these events. But uh, in, in these future books, to be written about this, this, it will be just the first chapter. And there will be many chapters that will show the continuity, the kind of prog progress of this kind of events in the nearest future from us. It's difficult, isn't it, to say anything with certainty. And I think, uh, you know, obviously as academics, you have to be incredibly cautious. Um, the media aren't always quite so cautious, but there are a number of things I think we can possibly uh, sort of discuss and say with a degree of certainty. One is that Putin seems to have emerged from this weaker with his image as a strong man challenged. Um, even his most ardent supporters uh, seem to now be sort of potentially starting to imagine a future without him whereas a year ago people wouldn't even have perhaps gone there the other aspect i think more important for international partners um or former international partners is that this whole lie that that russia somehow has you know a constitutional system you know we might not like it etc but it has rules it has you know some kind of basis in law that seems to have been blown apart by someone you know committing treason of the worst type 
being forgiven on the fly, ad hoc, with no parliament, no judiciary involved. And then, uh, I think it was today or yesterday, Putin has announced that actually Wagner was fully funded by the state. So how dare he, when in fact Wagner is illegal under the constitution, and there have been vociferous denials, and even court cases, I think one, um, Benedictive, I think, lost a court case, um, where uh, the state and Prigozhin were even associated with Wagner. So it just blows out this idea that there is um, any rule of law and exposes this system, which is very much based on informal personal relationships. Well, when you all that, I mean, really, who, 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 who does that? But uh, having it like in the open and uh, on the scale, of course, the scale of things is uh, important. It's not just that uh, um, that uh, the state financed Prigozhin and his troops. It financed it on a huge scale. You know, many billions of dollars were spent um, and partially, you know, wasted, partially whatever in, invested actually went for you know food and, and catering and uh, and shooting and killing but it's a huge money it's, uh, the estimates go up to like 10 billions um and they were not taxed you know they uh, you know they were so Prigozhin kept them in cash and he said that Every, every payment that I did, I did in cash. Of course, I had all these, you know, <laughs> lorries of cash. Um, I mean, it's all criminal activity, you know, from 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 bottom, from the, the, the bottom to the roof. It is criminal. It is it it's been accepted, but it doesn't mean that Prigozhin uh, has been pardoned in any kind of juridical sense like if we you know learn tomorrow that he he you know he fell, fell out of the window or was poisoned or whatever nobody would be really surprised it would be just continuation of the same story and another aspect uh, that is quite incredible at least to me is that uh, lukashenko should provide a inverted commas safe haven for uh Prigozhin and the and the wagnerites and there is apparently some footage of a military camp being repurposed for up to 20,000, or we don't know whether there's nearly that many uh, soldiers that have followed Prigozhin. This is extraordinary in itself, and it begs the question as to whether Lukashenko has actually enhanced his position, uh, certainly vis-a-vis -vis Putin. He's done a big favor, potentially, uh, for the president of Russia. Has he also gained himself uh, a, a Krisha? Has he gained himself... A sort of uh, you know bodyguards or protection that perhaps he could use against Putin uh, in some sense. Yeah, like if to believe that uh, that was really a true mutiny against Putin, uh, then Lukashenko gets uh, you know really good bodyguards for in a possible conflict. But that was not a mutiny against Putin. That was like a mutiny for for a, that was a sort of a march for for the better Putin. Uh, and he kind of refused to improve. And that was the reason why Prigozhin was so kind of disenchanted. 
and uh, turned his troops not really back, but like to different uh, direction to Belarus. So of course, it raises question like, is Belarus really truly a different country? You know, it's like this kind of medieval wars in which mercenaries uh, have this freedom of going, you know, from one country, from one master who pays, who, who paid well, but stopped paying uh, to another master who promises this payment. Like, it's like really it comes out from Machiavelli, who, though, though Machiavelli, of course, was very much against mercenaries. He, he told the prince not to trust them because they can do any time exactly what Prigozhin is doing. Yes, that, uh, I, I, I suspect that uh, Putin may not have uh, be deeply grounded in medieval uh, Italian politics as uh, the mistakes he seems to be making. Um, now, when did this sort of internal colonization, which we're still seeing sort of play out, when did that really begin? Do we have to go back to sort of Petrine times, Peter the Great, or, or does it go f much further back than that? It does go does go for the back, but once again, this um, process of, of you know on on the firm land, this process of external expansion and internal colonization, uh, deeply connected. But of course, the external expansion comes first, and then this land is taken by the Cossacks or by the soldiers, whatever, uh, and then it has to be. Um, uh, well, colonized really, and the first decision uh, of the second, the first decision was just to to take the land that would be kind of would be available, and then the second decision was like, uh, what what do we do with it? Like, why did we why do we need it? What what is, what is good there that we could whatever take from there and sell some some somewhere else? That's called ex economic exploitation and. You know, every colony, whether it's uh, overseas colony or terrestrial colony, is about a particular natural resource or that would be uh, valuable enough for being, you know, taken and sold or processed. And then the results of this industrial process, um, uh, act would be sold as commodity elsewhere. Um, and that this is how empires work, really. So... Um, and uh, in in uh, uh, this huge expanse, you know, between Moscow say, and Siberia, that was really a, a pretty long story. Uh, it's the, the the only valuable natural resource that Russia uh, could actually sell to its uh, to the Western uh, partners was fur, and uh, say the Novgorod uh principality the, the the first kind of organized uh state was exporting squirrel furs in huge numbers millions of squirrel furs a year and uh, it was exporting the same direction to to germany to uh, to the low countries uh to england and uh, then uh, uh the, then the, the West, mainly because there was uh, wool available. When when the wool became available in big uh, quantities, then uh, the West Western Europe lost its interest in squirrels, because you know wool, wool was uh, whatever better. 
light, etc., and warmer. And um, but then uh, in the during the the, the ship of Ivan the Terrible, the Russians found Sable in Siberia, and Sable had no competition. It was like diamonds nowadays, and it was easy to export. Kind of light. They don't. I mean, if, if they, they don't rot, etc. This uh, pills, and uh, therefore Siberia was taken. Uh, all this expansion through Siberia was done for the sake of sable. But then, then sable was also ex exhausted. Like un unlike many other natural resources, like the squirrel. You know, squirrel was still there, but there was no demand. But sable was actually done, exterminated, and um, and the, the Moscovite state lost its uh, source of income, and uh, you know decades passed, and uh, uh, the time of troubles started in Russia, and that was like a foreign invasion. The Poles came, the Cossacks came from the contemporary Ukraine. They occupied Moscow. Several imposters. Uh, the, the the British, uh, they they in, you know the British king, English king actually, um, developed a, a quite advanced plan of colonizing northern Russia through the White Sea, because there was, there was already the export of hemp that infantry really needed for for the navy, and uh, the time of trouble stopped. The, those sort of uh, uh, trade routes. Um, that also didn't happen for a number of reasons. But this time of troubles is a kind of uh, was a formative experience. So the new dynasty emerged, the Romanovs emerged at the end of this time of troubles. And every time that uh, another revolution or political crisis emerged, uh, in Russia, people are talking about that time of trouble. So, like every uh, empire goes through this sort of um, changes of its deep economic uh, and political structures from one change to another. See, the British Empire underwent this change from say importing sugar or trading in sugar to trade to trading in cotton, and that was a major kind of you know source of turbulence. Um, and in Russia, the, all these changes, you know, they, uh, they, they are compared to the times of trouble. And uh, it was interesting to see that during the Prig this Prigozhin mutiny, people started to think, to talk about the time of troubles once again. And it, it, clearly there are memories like this. I mean, not, not direct memories, but time of troubles must be given Putin some sort of degree of paranoia. But also, more recently, the revolution of 100 years ago, the 1917 revolution, he seems to have a particularly complicated relationship with that. And much more recently, what happened to Gaddafi? He does seem to uh, have this image of, uh, you know, Gaddafi um, being murdered in a ditch. And uh, these things must sit heavily on his mind. Well, they do, and... Uh... He, I mean, he he uh, often emphasized his historical erudition and kind of interest in history. 
it's never clear, you know, has he actually read or whatever, and what kind of historical books uh, he reads. It, it does look like, for instance, that he's interested in biographies. Uh, this is something else that triggers his uh, imagination. Um, but the um, gruesome end, I mean, uh, the murder of the Tsar family, they, they were like along with daughters and, you know, and doctors and, you know, and the uh, valets, they were just murdered and uh, bodies were uh, thrown into a mine. Not, they were not properly buried, etc. And they were, and, uh, you know, uh, they were uh, exhumed and uh, all kinds of political debates uh, took part um, about these remains and Putin was, had to make certain decisions about these remains. So I think that if he really thinks about uh, his and he thinks about it, uh, he, he does think about Gaddafi. He thinks about Nicholas II. And coming back to the idea of the sort of expropriation of resources, the expanding empire, the changing territory of the empire driven by resources, materials to power a centralized regime, that is not too dissimilar from you know the oil, the gas, the hydrocarbons that we see that have uh, delivered really what was a period of sort of 15 or so years of, of relative stability uh, from 2000 onwards. Um, that, of course, is being shaken up now. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But another aspect, going back to what you said about the sort of the Muscovy Empire sort of expanding along trade routes, there's another parallel process, isn't there? Or perhaps it comes with the delay. And that is when the elite acquires money, they seek to use that money to acquire respectability. Uh, and we know that European culture, European literature was grafted on, European you know, architecture, construction styles were grafted on, often to the detriment of what perhaps was local and what went before. Um, I'd love to hear your views on, on, on the role of, of uh, sort of acquiring culture, art, et cetera, um, along with, you know, the acquisition of resources, materials, trade routes, etc. Wow, that's a deep question. So um, uh, that's an important process. Uh, uh, and uh, the, this extractive economy uh, really brings a lot of money in, in the hands of the uh, uh, head of the state. But then how he uses this money is a, a different question. It depends on the taste and sort of his or her personal kind of culture. So say Catherine II uh, had a highly advanced uh, European taste. So, so she, she was German, you know, from um, one of Northern German principalities. And uh, she uh, saw St. Petersburg and uh, certain villages around Petersburg as her home. So she built palaces, she invited really best architects of Europe, Italians, whatever, French, to build fantastic uh, palaces and uh, museums. And she bought up, you know, the value, val valuable objects, uh, whatever, canvases or engraved stones or whatever from, uh, you know, all over Europe. To keep it 
in um, the Hermitage. So, so what happens? So sables or some other like whatever foxes, etc. Um, that, that was still um, uh, so. That was grain and fur, but grain came to the state. But the, the profits from sable uh, or from fur trade uh, still, in even in the time of Catherine II, still came to her personal. Uh, personal uh, chancellery. That was her, like her personal money. So the, the, uh, this fur would be sold in Europe and then uh, this, uh, in exchange Rembrandt or whatever, Raphael <laughs> would come to the Hermitage. Um, Let's say Putin's power is different. So the, the oil and gas comes basically from the same places from where Sable came from, where Siberia. Um, uh, to the same places, you know. So the, when I was writing this internal colonization book, I, I was struck by the fact that the trade routes were very much the same. There is no such, no, no more different things like than say furs, fur and oil, but uh, but but they came from went from went Siberia to West Russia through the same kind of rivers, canals, and uh, and uh, the Baltic um, uh, then and now, but then uh, the money goes back, but not not back not to West Siberia, but go back to the Russian capitals. Then it was St. Petersburg, now it's Moscow. Now, how to spend this money? So Catherine, whatever, invested in uh, in um, art collections. She invited French philosophers, Diderot came, and, you know, she actually paid pensions, you know, to Walter and whatever. Uh, it, it would be like as if, like, Putin, say, uh, paid pension to Derrida. That's entirely impossible to imagine this. So that really depends on taste of the ruler. So the, this solution, but what? But still, what to do with this money? Of course, a big chunk went to. Now we know how much uh, went to say Prigozhin and uh, his business. Uh, Big chunk of this money went to the minister of the minister of defense, you know, for um, the armaments, etc. But the um, but Putin's and his elite solution was entire, was exactly different uh, from Catherine's. Uh, Putin's solution is called capital capital flight. So they brought this money, and because because it's insecure in Russia, it's unstable. And uh, and it's not cozy maybe for someone, and there is no good uh, whatever parks or universities or hospitals for the families of these people. So they exported this money legally or uh, illegally. They smuggled these billions and billions. They come to a trillion during the Putin's years to Western Europe and North America. So they bought yachts, they uh, built uh, palaces, uh, villas, whatever. They invested, of course, in um, various stocks and uh, uh, and banks. 
And uh, it's interesting to look, you know, like everyone who, who comes to Russia goes to the Hermitage and he knows, you know, what Catherine bought for her money. But what Putin buys for his money is less known. Like we know much of it from Alexei Navalny's shows. Uh, in my book, I sort of I spent some time just exploring, just using internet for investigating Putin's yachts. Putin's yacht, Sechin yachts, you know, Abramovich yacht, what kind of yachts. That was an interesting exercise. I sort of collected this information just to understand the scale of this theft. And when that culture is grafted on, uh, as as it was over hundreds of years, um, does that sort of have an influence on, I would say, the inheritability of that or the innovation? Um, I mean, a really sort of weird analogy would be, you know, someone who's made their new money in Britain, they go out and buy the best sofa money can buy, and then they keep the plastic on it, you know, and you can't sit on it and enjoy it because, you know, it's a, it's a status symbol. It's not something you actually enjoy and really incorporate into your imagination and your life. Um is there an aspect of why we see, let's say, in the revolution, you know, so much of uh, Russian culture and art and innovation gets sort of stifled, destroyed, lost every time there's one of these seismic sort of political changes? There's a problem not just in political succession, but there seems to be a problem in cultural inheritability or inheriting the ability to, to innovate through these different sort of generations of power shifts. Right. I, I summarize these uh, concepts in the uh, idea of taste, you know. Uh, your, your, your example with sofa is a good one because it's like that there is this kind of old idea that the nouveau riche, the new rich, they don't have good taste. You know, it's, it takes generations to develop pro proper taste, which, of course, you know, that there are so many exceptions from this rule, etc. And uh, and uh, Russians, you know, before the revolution, after the revolution, they actually were leading in cultural innovation, modernism, modern art, modern art visual art, ballet, Zagilev's ballet. Culinary art as well, little known, but Moscow restaurant culture of the, you know, the, the early part of the uh, 20th century was incredibly vibrant. Also interesting, yeah, and uh, but also the, there are studies that show that say that some some of the first black jazz performers, you know, they they were they they came to Moscow Petersburg to perform. You know. So it was actually very sensitive. That was good taste, you know, sensitive, uh, creative, uh, hospitable to innovation, um, and also. The same, the same goes to the antiques. So the Russian collectors from Catherine to, to um, you know, great, great 19th century collectors, um, Tritsikov, etc. So they actually helped preserve world culture on a big scale. But with the, this new Russian elite, uh, that's something different. Uh, they, uh, we, we, like from Navalny, we saw this, you know, pathetic architecture of um, of Putin's palace. Uh, from the news, I learned uh, quite recently, actually, it happened that the Italian architect who built uh, that palace uh, and those 40 other palaces uh, around Moscow, and also in Russia, he was arrested recently by the Italian Carabinieri and uh, for tax evasion. And he had his own palace 
somewhere near Brescia and uh, uh, helicopters, etc. So um, there, there are interesting kind of speculations, interesting research being done on this taste of their new rulers. And it's, it's not only Russian problem, like when Yanukovych, the Ukrainian leader, fled from Russia, so people actually uh, broke into his palace and uh, you know many photos was, uh, he, he, he actually lived there. Putin didn't live in that palace. That, uh, uh, still we have some photos of the, from the Kremlin, very bad taste. Um, so why and what are the cultural, is it whatever, is it Barocco or is it Rococo? Is it like the like, Italian legacy? So it looks like more like the Habsburgs, you know. Uh, where did it come from? Or maybe like Putin was so impressed by the Ekaterinian palace, Katarina Great Palaces, that he visited like like in a, uh, Leningrad, school uh, uh, child um, for excursions, and there is a lot of kind of rococo there. But there is this issue of taste, which is kind of interesting. And it's not only Russian problem, I think, like when we saw the Trump Tower, for instance, when we saw some other international oligarchs, you know, how they live, what they do with their money. Um, that's pretty much Berlusconi, of course, was a big teacher of Putin in various matters, matters of television, matters of political propaganda. Uh, and I guess matters of taste in general. Well, let's turn uh, in the sort of uh, as we're approaching the sort of uh, sort of final question or questions. Um, let's turn to this concept of internal colonization, because through big chunks of Russian history, that was a process taking place in the context of expansion, the expanding borders of the empire. Um, and you could include the acquisition of Eastern Europe after the Second World War, but also the territories of Finland and so on that required and still form part of, of Russia's territory. As we're entering this period of instability, how do you think internal colonization um, could go into reverse? And, and how could a process of decolonization uh, take place, given the context of how that empire was built up and how brittle its uh, centralized system appears to be? Yeah, we should go basically around the map of the Russian Federation and look at its borders and also at its internal parts. So the internal colonization is, you know, is one thing, but this sort of, uh, let's say the Chinese uh, call 100 years of shame. It's a different historical memories uh, about the uh, appropriate about the Russian empire, imperial appropriations or the Soviet appropriations of certain lands. Some of these lands, many of these lands, uh, foreign lands, were uh, emancipated themselves in 1991, but not all of them. Uh, you mentioned, say, the, uh, the the Gulf of Finland territory, uh, which was taken uh, after the Finnish war, after the World War II. It was it was internationally recognized, but say I I I, I, I grew up there in uh, this to, to the north from Leningrad in uh, the Dutch places and uh, visited them uh, many times. So I had my own Dutch somewhere there. Uh, on the lake of Ladoga, and I saw it's called nostalgic tourism. So Finnish buses come, and old ladies or gentlemen they come and 
trying to find that well or that fireplace that they remember everything has changed, but they do find it. Um, uh, or going back to the Chinese border, uh, there was a huge territory that was taken as, as uh, by the Russian Empire as uh, the result of the Second Opium War, which the British Empire waged against China, shamefully. Uh, but, and the Russians uh, actually negotiated, mediated the conflict and kind of helped to um, to find a diplomatic solution. There's uh, huge territories on the uh, Amur River and all the way to Vlad Vladivostok that were taken uh, by the Russian Empire after the uh, Second Opium War. Um, and the, the war was uh, waged by the British and French empires, but the Russians helped to negotiate the peace. And in the process of this negotiation, they, they actually got a huge chunk of land called Outer Manchuria. And now it's basically Southern Siberia. Uh, and um, Chinese uh, have their own historical memories. So when I imagine how Putin shares his historical grievance, grievances with pre President Xi. I call it this Donbass, it used to be ours, now it's not ours, we, you know, we want it back. Uh, so President Xi, with his smile, he kind of, uh, he, he has his thoughts and, uh, you know, about the Second Opium War, Outer Manchuria, and all these natural resources, you know, from timber to oil, etc., that uh, to rare metals, that, uh, still not used on that underpopulated territory. So one uh, process that we could imagine, and uh, it has it has some something to do with internal colonization, but it was it's more, more like a legacy of external colonization of just imperial expansion uh, of the proper imperialism. Uh, going, uh, looking outside, and now these territories are within the Russian Federation and uh, on the borders, uh, you know, when the central power will kind of be weakening, these borders will crumble. And of course, that's already a, a serious challenge because, say, there were dozens of thousands of Russian troops along the Chinese border. They were well equipped with the amenities, uh, Soviet made uh, military bases and all that. And now all the tanks and, uh, and, and personnel, they are in Ukraine. So the Chinese border is not protected and President Xi knows it very well, better than anybody else. And what will he will do with this? You know, would he prefer sort of peaceful migration and agricultural development? So much of this farmland, you know, is being developed in Southern Siberia by by, by the Chinese already. But it is, you know, partially illegally, partially illegally, nobody notices. Um, so, or he would prefer uh, something more uh, radical. What, say, the Finnish people would want. You know, there were many polls in, in which the Finnish, the people of Finland, they said, no, we don't need this, you know. Uh, lands back. They, they used to be beautiful. Vyborg was the second uh, city of Finland, the, the most beautiful one, etc. But but it's now so much destroyed and spoiled. We don't want it back. But of course, 
the Finnish people are free to change their mind at the time. So that's one process on the exactly on the periphery on in the like, borderlands of the Russian Federation. But there are also interesting processes within the Federation because there are big uh, lands, potential uh, countries such as Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, and many others, you know, places in the Urals and Siberia, and of course in the Caucasus and southern Russia that could also claim their independence uh, whenever the central power would feel sick. Well, the last the last question really is around uh, change and actually so, so sustainable democratic change, which may seem to be sort of wishful thinking for now. But in talking to a lot of people who were activated by uh, Maidan, the Revolution of Dignity, who've been involved with the development of civil society in Ukraine, I think one of the lesser appreciated aspects is that actually having a sense of location, having agency control over your locality, your town, your region, and your immediate life has been actually an important part. Now that ladders up to the revolutions they've had, but actually it's that emergence of local power bases and local civil society that's been a key feature of why these changes have actually been sustainable and as robust as they are. This sort of, to me at least, implies that if Russia is to progress and move forward, then some significant fragmentation of central power needs to happen and local, regional, city-based um, power structures, genuine power structures need to emerge uh, that are locally accountable. Even for that process to begin, I'm not saying it will come into existence, you know, momentarily, it'll take decades, but that is perhaps the starting point. Uh, how, how on earth is that going to happen? I think actually that this is already happening. And, uh, you know, that, that actually happened right after 1991. That's uh, Tatarstan proclaimed its sovereignty and Yeltsin's government accepted that and negotiated some kind of mutually beneficial whatever conditions. There, there was a constitution and then Putin came to power and changed that constitution and uh, deprived Tatarstan of its sovereignty, whatever it meant at that point. And, um, and then there are, you know, all kinds of issues with, uh, say, language training, Tatar language in the school, say, the University of Tatarstan, uh, in, or the University of Kazan uh, is well known for its kind of serious na nationalist uh, movement among the students, even among the professors. Um, uh, in the Komi Republic, um, there are, you know, that's the European north of Russia. There were particular situation like they have their own nationalist movements in the Udmurtia, their own professor of the local university in Izhevsk committed suicide, burned himself in you know in protest against the sort of discrimination of the local Udmurt language. And there are cases and cases, but of course it's all kind of pales in comparison to the current war, but still the successes of Ukraine, I'm sure, will sort of be, will, will trigger, will be used as models by many other separatist nationalist uh, movements uh, around the federation that, that will start to, you know, be more kind of, to, to, will start to, to unfold, to, to be clear, to be visible for us. Um, 
there are basically two projects of you know put for post post for a good Russia for post Putin's Russia kind of that how it could develop positively. There are you know also many projects, uh, many many fears of what could happen if you know, of a negative uh, range. Uh, but for a positive development, there are two projects. One is this sort of uh, fragmentation and uh, understanding that different parts, each each successor state will have its own political system. There was, you know, democracy in one place, theocracy in another place, whatever. Uh, maybe joining the neighbor for some, some someone else, economic dependencies, etc. Um, but the, the space is huge, and uh, yes, there will be this kind of centripetal development, like every part will be developing in a different direction, and they, they will still have to deal with each with one another. You know, there will be trade routes, whatever political coalitions. We don't know all that, but I think that's the that's a very positive and kind of very optimistic scenario. But also, it's the all this variety. Uh, will have to be accepted, recognized by the global community. That's you know crucial for uh, for the success uh, of this long-term uh, progress. But another and competitive project, and much of the Russian opposition, anti-Putin opposition, actually shares this particular project. Is that okay? So so there will be kind of democratic development within the current Russian borders. So the bad government should be changed, uh, you know, onto a good government, and uh, all this really bad, un, you know, fictional democracy will be changed into a true democracy. But uh, it will still, you know, hap should should happen, will happen within the current uh, boundaries, and that would be fantastic if it. And uh, I, I'm sure that you know the. Uh, American friends of Russia and the European friends, and uh, even I think some Ukrainian enemies uh, of the Russian Federation, they, they would prefer this scenario uh, for various reasons. But I look at this very skeptically because it is, it is exactly this sort of imperialism internal imperialism of the Russian Federation that has already killed its democratic development. So there were, in the, through the 90s, there were lots of positive you know, changes and processes. But then the Chechen war started. One Chechen war, second Chechen war, Putin came to power for running these wars. And, uh, you know, we, we know, know very well what happened next. So the if if the this democratic development, the one of the goals or the maybe the high principle of this democratic development will be keeping Russia united, running it as the United Russia. United Russia is the ruling party of the Putin's regime. They have no other political ideas or ideals but United Russia. So this would be a very, very bad thing to inherit. And it will kill the Russian democracy. Imperialism would kill Russian democracy once again. Yeah, even if there's a 
couple of years of stability it's almost like uh you know the one is is an oxymoron the one sort of cancels out the other that's absolutely fascinating uh alexander it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you about these incredibly complex issues and i'm sure the coming weeks and months will play out in a variety of actually quite unpredictable ways exactly well looking forward to <laughs> to seeing all this happening and maybe we will discuss it once again. <laughs>